Matthew's Gospel, chapter 18, and we will read a portion beginning at verse 15 and read down to verse 20. So Matthew's Gospel, chapter 18. Before we read, let us bow in prayer again. Let's just look to the Lord for help and for the grace that we need as we come before Him and we worship Him around His Word. Our Heavenly Father and our Eternal God, we continue in Thy presence. In the name of Thy well-beloved Son, we thank Thee that we are privileged to meet in the house of God another Sabbath evening. We rejoice that we have access to Thee through Christ our Redeemer, that just now we may lift up our hearts to heaven and call on Thy name and pour out our souls to Thee. Lord, Thou dost know the need, Thou dost know this heart of the creature and the need for that grace and that power to be able to bring the Word of God in that effective manner. And so, Lord, breathe in me, breathe on the congregation. May Thy Spirit move among us. May there be help from the throne of God above. May there be conviction of sin felt deeply within hearts in this gathering. Lord, may there be a work done for eternity. Bless us, we pray. Continue with us now. Cover us beneath the shadow of Thy wing. Grant us the touch of heaven. May the Lord draw very near. We pray this for Christ's sake and for His eternal glory. Amen and amen. So verse 15 of Matthew chapter 18, let us hear the Word of God. And the Lord Jesus says, Moreover, if thy brother shall trespass against thee, go and tell him his fault between thee and him alone. If he shall hear thee, thou hast gained thy brother. But if he will not hear thee, then take with thee one or two more, that in the mouth of two or three witnesses every word may be established. And if he shall neglect to hear them, tell it unto the church. But if he neglect to hear the church, let him be unto thee as an heathen man and a publican. Verily I say unto you, Whatsoever ye shall bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatsoever ye shall loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Again I say unto you that if two of you shall agree on earth as touching anything that they shall ask, it shall be done for them of my Father which is in heaven. For where two or three are gathered together in my name, there am I in the midst of them. And we know God will bless the reading of His Word to our hearts. It's that last verse to which I want to bring your minds tonight. Very well-known verse, for where two or three are gathered together in my name, there am I in the midst of them. And this verse lies in a passage in which the Lord gives very clear direction about spiritual gatherings in various church settings. In the main context, the Lord addresses those solemn issues when His servants assemble to oversee matters when church discipline becomes essential. However, His instruction then develops to take in church gatherings for prayer. Notice in verse 19, these words, as touching anything that they shall ask. Asking is praying, 
And so a meeting for prayer is in view in verse number 19. And every legitimate petition that ever could be offered in the place of prayer is included because it says, as touching anything that they shall ask. And therefore, the Lord puts a stamp of approval on the need to come together for set times of prayer. The practice of gathering for prayer runs the whole way through the New Testament. The New Testament prayer meeting really carries over from Old Testament times. For example, in Acts 3 and verse number 1, we have a reference to the hour of prayer. The Jews had set hours for prayer, and New Testament believers, as Acts 3.1 shows you, observed those times, those hours of prayers that the Jews had had uh, from time immemorial down through the ages as they met together. Furthermore, the New Testament prayer meeting is revealed to be a gathering in which the Lord delights. That's the plain inference and teaching of verse number 20. It says, For where two or three are gathered together in my name, there am I in the midst of them. In this verse, the Lord continues with what He has underlined in verse 19 regarding meeting to pray. He now promises in verse 20 regarding even the smallest assembly for prayer that He will be present in the midst. And that promise shows the Lord's delight in gatherings for prayer and reveals that this should be, of course, the delight of His people as well. However, it is obviously true that the Lord delights in uh, all gatherings in His name. That's a fact that came to me very forcefully with great power in recent days. Whatever the purpose of the assemblies of His people may actually be, the Lord Jesus Christ is present. And that includes the gospel meeting such as this gathering is in which we assemble together tonight. Meetings for evangelistic preaching, that is clearly taught in the New Testament Scripture as well. The Lord Himself in His early ministry was present in such settings as He preached the gospel unto them, as we find in different verses. The apostles did likewise. They had evangelistic gatherings and assemblies huge crowds or small crowds or whatever the number might have been, the Lord and the apostles, they had these gatherings uh, for gospel preaching. And therefore, we find that throughout church history, the true church of God has always followed this pattern, meeting for the purpose of preaching the gospel and winning souls. That is a genuine gathering of the church of Jesus Christ, and it is a necessary gathering as well that we should come together, and our purpose should be that in such a meeting, and it's usually the Sabbath evening or during gospel missions, we gather together, and our purpose and our intention is to see the lost gathered in and precious souls won to our Savior. Now, that means that our text is revealing to us that the Lord is present in such evangelistic meetings. May I say at this moment, therefore, that He is here tonight. There is no doubt about this. 
because we have his own promise to confirm to us the certainty of his attendance. I trust that that will make an impact upon those who are here tonight who, who are not yet saved. You sit in a spiritual gathering. It's a gathering for worship. It's a time for the proclamation of the truth of God. But do you realize that the Lord is here? That's what he says in this verse, where two or three are met together in my name. I am there. He's here by his Spirit. He's here through his Word. He's here by his intimate presence as he manifests it. He's here as conviction of sin is felt and souls are moved and hearts are anxious and there's a disturbance within the very inner being of those who are lost. That's the indication that the Lord is here, that His presence is among us. And that fact raises great hopes for the eternal well-being of those who are not yet saved. Christ has come into our midst tonight and may it be to save your soul and have you come to know Him and be rescued by Him and be saved by His sovereign grace. And so tonight we will consider this text from that angle. We will consider it as an assurance that the Lord is present in the gospel meeting where lost or unsaved people, male and female, of all age groups are in attendance. His presence, you see, signifies that He has an interest in those who are lost. God forbid that we should think otherwise. It is apparent, isn't it? It should be uppermost in our minds that since there are Christians here who pray for the unsaved, who meet Sunday night by Sunday night and at other times to pray for souls and to plead with God on their behalf that the Lord Himself is praying and the Lord Himself has an interest in such a gathering and the Lord is here with that deep interest in His soul that there would be those who will be brought to know Him and be saved by grace and be delivered from their sin. And His interest in lost souls has different aspects to it as this text will show us as we think about it and examine it tonight by the help of the Holy Spirit. So I want to come to this verse. I want to consider several truths about the Lord's interest in lost and guilty souls. And may that again strike your heart, unsaved one. The Lord has an interest in your soul, in your conversion, in your salvation. We see it in a number of ways. First of all, His preeminence over the lost. Now think about those few words in this verse where, it, where the Lord actually says, there am I in the midst. Take those, uh, those last words there where He says, in the midst, just three words. And when we think about those three words, that little phrase, in the midst, we find it is used several times in the Word of God and throughout uh, the Scriptures in various places, but certainly in the New Testament has found a number of times that show to us that these are words that signify the matter of preeminence. And therefore, I want you to feel this as we begin tonight to look at this verse. The Lord's preeminence over the lost. 
Sinner, you need to see that. The Lord is here. He's present in this gathering by His Word, by His Spirit, as I have said, but He is someone who is preeminent over you. It will not have gripped your mind and gripped your heart because it means that you are subservient to Him and you must yield to Him. He is here as the one who's preeminent over the lost. Now, the first time you find these words of Christ in the New Testament is when he was a boy of 12. And many of you will know the story in Luke chapter 2. And in verse number 46, we're told this, And it came to pass that after three days they found him in the temple, sitting in the midst of the doctors, both hearing them and asking them questions. This is the only incident regarding the Lord Jesus in the times of his boyhood years when he was 12 years of age. And yet that text reveals to us that even then there was a preeminence about the Lord, a preeminence about his very being and his very demeanor. Because there he is in Jerusalem, and the story is well known, Mary and Joseph have been to the feast and they've gone back home and they've traveled a whole day not realizing that the Lord wasn't with them. And they must go back to Jerusalem and they go down to the temple. That's where the feast was held. That's the last place they would have seen the Lord. And there He is. But He's not on the periphery. He's not on the outside of the gathering. He's not at a distance from those doctors as they're called. They are men who study the Old Testament Scriptures. They are religious leaders. And they are the important men, so to speak, the chief men of the religion of the Jews. But there they are, and they're gathered around Christ. That's very striking. The first time you ever hear the Lord speak in the days of His flesh, is in that passage. And you find him speaking of being about his father's business. He's sitting in the midst of all those learned men. He is receiving their questions and he's giving them the answers to those questions and he's also addressing questions to them. And therefore, at that early stage of his earthly life, he was actually showing that he is Lord of all. He's showing that already. He is Lord of all. The second time you find these words concerning our Savior in the midst, apart from what we have here, is when He rises from the dead and He meets with the disciples in the upper room. Luke 24 and verse number 46, and you'll find the words there. And the Lord's in the midst and the, the scene and the theme is developing. And now he's the risen Christ. And he's in the center of that gathering in that upper room. And rightly so. And everybody else is around him. And they're viewing him. And they're looking at his hands and his feet and his side. They are seeing the evidence that he has been to the cross. But they're also seeing the evidence that he's risen from the dead. And he's among them once more in all of His glorious preeminence. And the third time you find these words 
of our blessed Savior is when he has gone back to heaven. And that is why Reverend Stuart read that little passage from Revelation 5 earlier on. And there you read in verse number 6 twice in that verse that he is in the midst. If you go to chapter 7 of Revelation and verse 17, you'll find the same words to do with heaven. And the Lamb is in the midst, the Lamb who was slain, but who liveth again. And where is he? He's in the midst. Now listen to me, my friend. That's the Christ who said, as we find in our text, where two or three are met together in my name. There am I in the midst. Every gathering that's truly convened in the Lord's name, every gathering that is focused on truth, every gathering that is met to glorify the Lord is a gathering in which the Savior is present and His preeminence, His Lordship, must be uppermost in our minds as we think about such gatherings. And so considering those examples... This instance in our text signifies His preeminence with regard to gatherings for worship such as we are convening and holding at this very moment in nature. This is an assurance, as I've already intimated, given by Christ for all time that He will be there in the midst of those worship gatherings as the preeminent one. And it's the sinner who needs to uh, see that tonight above everything else. Jesus Christ is preeminent over you. Recognize that. Feel that. Sense that. That the one who's here tonight in our midst actually has sovereign preeminence over you as your creator, as your judge, and as your king. Now, what does that lead us to understand? He's preeminent in his position over you. It's a position of absolute authority. Before the Lord went back to heaven, remember how we saw He's in the midst when He's 12 years old, He's in the midst when He rises from the dead, and then He's in the midst when He went back to heaven. But before He went back to heaven, He said this, all authority is given unto me in heaven and on earth. And that means that when we gather here in the Lord's house, as we're doing now, and we're here for a gospel meeting, and the Lord is here, as His promise tells us, and He's here in all His preeminence, He's therefore here in His preeminence that belongs to His position of authority over your soul. It's just as real now. I want you to get a hold of this. This matter of the, the, the position of, of His preeminence over you is just as real now as it will be when He comes again the second time. I think of Philippians chapter 2, verses 8 to 11, where Paul says concerning Christ, Wherefore God also hath highly exalted Him, and given him a name that's above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow, and every tongue confess that he is Lord to the glory of God the Father. And those words are specifically to do with the day when the Lord will come, and every tongue will confess, every tongue without exception, obviously, 
and every knee shall bow to the one who is Lord, to the glory of God the Father. But listen to me, my dear friend. That preeminence in his position over men that will be displayed that day visibly and openly when he comes again is already in existence. He has all authority over you. And that is why as you meet with us tonight, as you're here in this gospel gathering, this evangelistic meeting, it would be good for you to recognize that what you need to do is to surrender to the preeminent one, the Lord of glory, the one who has all authority over you. His position over you is one that you cannot ever hope to evade or escape as time goes on and the great day comes and you leave this world and you go out into God's eternity, you will then know and understand the awful authority that belongs to the preeminence of Jesus Christ. And at that great day that we see about in Philippians 2, when He appears in His glory, oh, the sight, the sight of the preeminent one in His throne and all authority to call men to the judgment bar and no one will be able to resist and no voice of opposition will even be heard. All will be, all will be suppressed and there will be the complete subjugation of the enmity of the hearts of men for the Son of God and they will be brought irresistibly to the throne of God to stand for judgment. And yet the Lord who is that same authority over you at this moment is in this meeting tonight and that is why I say to you that what you need to do is surrender to Him. Yield yourself and come before Him and brokenness over your sin, realizing that you are hopelessly outnumbered. I think of that little parable in Luke 14 where the Lord stresses and impresses upon His hearers the issue of the sovereign authority and power of the great King, the Lord Himself. And He tells the parable. He relates it there toward the end of that chapter. And He says to men that they are like those who are soldiers in an army. And yet they've got to realize that there's someone coming against them who outnumbers them completely. And what those sinners ought to do is sue for conditions of peace. Now, sinner, see this tonight. Understand the Lord's preeminence over you as a lost soul in terms of His position of authority, absolute authority over your life, over your whole being. He made you. He gives you the very breath that you breathe. He has allowed you so many days to live in this world. That's all included. That's all part of this preeminent authority that the Lord holds within His very hand with regard to your soul. And yet all the while, as we sang in that second hymn, you have not yielded to Him. You've continued on in your sin. You have not surrendered to the Lord of glory. And you are therefore in, you are therefore in great danger. He's preeminent as well in His perception of you. There's another place with regard to the Lord being in heaven in the midst, in which we read 
of that very same fact. It's Revelation 1, verse number 13. And it's part of John's great vision of Christ who is in our midst tonight. But one of the features that John notices in Revelation 1.13 is this. He sees this voice in the midst of the seven candlesticks and he hears the voice of the Lord Jesus, but he notices among other things that he has eyes as a flame of fire. What is depicted by that imagery? His eyes were as a flame of fire. Well, it signifies, as I said, the perception, the knowledge of Christ. In fact, you will find in chapter 2 of Revelation, verses 18 and 19, these words, These things saith the Son of God, who hath his eyes like unto a flame of fire. I know thy works. What are the eyes like a flame of fire? They are eyes that pierce. They are eyes that are filled with a brightness and a glory that belongs to no one else but the God-man. Eyes like a flame of fire, burning, piercing, penetrating. And he says this, I know thy works. He's here tonight. Those eyes are set on you. You cannot hide from them. He's in our midst. He's walking among us candlesticks as Revelation 2, along with Revelation 1, tell you the, the seven candlesticks are the seven churches, and the Lord walks among them. My dear friend, He's walking in our midst tonight. He's, he's passing you by. Do you feel His presence? Passing you by in the sense, I mean, of coming alongside and he's examining you, and he's focusing on you, and he's telling you that I know you. Hear it, my friend. I don't really know you any more than you really know me, because you can't, you can't see my heart, and I can't see your heart. But the one with the eyes is a flame of fire, reads every thought, penetrates every recess of your soul. He sees beyond the veneer. He looks beyond the cover-up. He has a fiery glance that penetrates into the depths of your being, and He takes in everything that you are and all the sins of which you're guilty, and you cannot hide one iota from Him, not one, Therefore, he's preeminent in his perception of you. He knows you. You cannot hide from him. And surely, that is a call in itself to you to heed his word and to obey his truth. He's also preeminent in his program for you. The only Savior he is, the only Redeemer of sinners, he's, he's present. He's here tonight. He's in the midst. And when preaching takes place and gatherings assemble, He's in the midst to promote this program of the salvation of lost souls. And that program, of course, is to challenge, to challenge hearts, to give obedience to the gospel, 
that is being proclaimed. Let me tell you something. The Lord is not in those places tonight where the gospel isn't preached. Churches that are dead, where there's no focus on the blood of the covenant, where there's no dependence upon the finished work of Calvary. It may be nothing more than a dead ritual or ceremony of the works of man. But let me tell you and say it again, the Lord is not there. But in spite of all of our unworthiness, because we are unworthy even to have the Lord among us, but in spite of that, the Lord is here. And I don't say that with any degree of arrogance whatsoever. I simply base that upon this book. It says here, uh, or speaks here of those who gather together in my name. And I will say more about that in a moment or two. But that's the crucial little part of this verse with regard to knowing that the Lord is present. It's in His name. That means it's a focusing on Christ and His work and His salvation and all that He has done to save men from their sins. And that's what we're doing. As happens every Sunday night, there's a focusing in on that program of Jesus Christ whereby sinners are reconciled to God. There's a marvelous verse that Paul brings before us in 2 Corinthians 5 and 20. You know what it says? Now then, we are ambassadors for Christ. Now listen carefully to this. Because it ties in with what I've been saying all through already. We are ambassadors for Christ as though God did beseech you by us. We pray you in Christ's stead be ye reconciled to God. Notice in that verse Paul's assertion of being the Lord's ambassador. That is a spokesman for the royal king of glory, the risen head, the savior of men. He says, I'm the Lord's ambassador. He also says in that verse that he's acting in Christ's stead. So much so that it is as if the Lord is present in the preacher and in the message especially, bringing home, bringing home to those who listen His claims, His message, this program of how sinners can be reconciled to God because that's what the cry is in that great verse. Be ye reconciled to God. My friend, that's Christ's preeminent program be ye reconciled to God because you are at enmity with God. Just think about that. All is not well at all. You meet here tonight, you're in this building. You may feel comfortable, you may feel that being here is a good thing and it's going to gain some merit with God and some favor with the Savior. No, 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 not at all. Because once you enter into such a place as this and Christ is being preached, the one who is preeminent over the lost with regard to his position of authority and his perception of people and all that they are and that program that is proclaimed, oh, the need to be reconciled to God. Once you're in that atmosphere, you are there as the enemy of the Lord. Now, you may not like that. You may be offended by that. Because people want to think that 
They're, they're just wonderful. And they do nobody any harm. And they're quite well and quite all right as how they're living and behaving. But my friend, it's, it's the opposite. The carnal mind is enmity with God. Not subject to the law of God. In fact, it says in that same verse, neither indeed can be, is not able to be. You are not only a fallen sinful wretch of an enemy of Christ and of God, but you are marked and you are fettered by your own inability to do anything about it. Your mind is a mass of enmity to God. And you can't change that by your own works or by your own efforts or by anything that you purpose to do. It is something that binds you. It grips you. It fetters you. It holds you. And you are not reconciled to God. You're completely and absolutely lost. Do you realize that? Do you realize at this moment that you're on the road to hell? that you're traveling there day by day, moment by moment, as life unfolds and the years slip away and you grow older like everybody else. We're all just at different stages in the whole journey of life. There are little ones here not long born, small boys and girls toddling around in the what we call the innocence of childhood, and others in their teens, and so on. On and on it goes, up through the different levels. But the point is, we are all growing old. Death is working in us. From the moment you were born, sinner, death began to work in you. From that precise moment when you gave your first cry at your entrance into this world, death began to work in you. And it's been working ever since. And every day is marked off and every month fades away, and every year is gone, never to be recovered, and you are closer to hell than ever before. From the last time you sat in that seat and were in this building on a gospel meeting, you are, whether it's a week or a month or whatever, the, uh, the, the time since you were last here, you are that amount of time closer to the end of the journey and nearer to hell. time for you to realize that there's one in the midst tonight preeminent over you who shows you all these things. But I also see in these words, this text, not only his preeminence over the lost, but his passion for the lost. Because when there are gatherings where there's a true focus on Christ, the assurance is given by the Lord there am I in the midst of them. And those words underline the Savior's passion toward those who are present. The Lord has feelings, He has passions, and He demonstrates them when He actually says, and think about it this way, He condescends. He comes down from heaven by the Spirit. He's among us tonight. Oh, what condescension for Christ to come down among the like of us. But that very fact shows you the passion of Christ concerning those who are lost and yet in their sins. 
Those words, there am I in the midst of them, may also be read, and that's very obvious. You can, read them this, you can read them this way. I am there in the midst. Where and when assemblies in Christ's name take place, he declares, I am there. Notice this, it's the present tense. He doesn't say, I will be there. The order is not this, that the people come together and then the Lord arrives. It's the very opposite. When a meeting is convened and when it is appointed, whenever the people arrive is to find that the Lord is there first. That's the sense of these words. Where two or three are met together, I am there. He means I am already there. He is there first. He is there before them. Because how could they gather in His name if He were not there from the very first? And so Christ precedes the people. He initiates the gathering. He draws them together. Do you understand that? You thought, and I know from the human element there's a truth here, but you thought that it was your own initiative that brought you here tonight. You decided to come, otherwise you wouldn't be here. You made the choice to leave your home, come in your car, whatever, and sit down in a pew. And yet, my dear friend, before that thought was in your mind, the Lord was drawing you. He was putting in your heart to come. He was placing in your soul to be in this building tonight and come into this house of His and gather with those others who are also drawn to this very place. All of that is here. And all of that sums up what I have called His passion for the lost. And notice again those words, gathered together in my name. They are vital words. Because through those words, with regard to His passion for the lost, there's a focusing on His merit to save the lost. That's what gathering in the Lord's name really means. That's what it signifies. When we gather in His name, we are gathering on the basis of who He is, yes, but also on what He has done. I've already referred to the night after he rose from the dead. And he, he met with the disciples in the upper room. In John 19, or sorry, John 20, and verse 19, let me just read those wonderful words. It says there, Then the same day at evening, being the first day of the week, when the doors were shut, where the disciples were assembled, for fear of the Jews, came Jesus and stood in the midst and said unto them, Peace be unto you. And when he had so said, he showed unto them his hands and his side. Then were the disciples glad when they saw the Lord. They saw the living Christ, but he still had the marks of Calvary on him. What was he showing them? What he summed up in his statement, Peace be unto you. My dear friend, I want you to think about that tonight because the Lord is here to tell you that His work is finished. 
that redemption is complete, that the atonement has been made, the one sacrifice has been offered, the one and only sacrifice that saves, that pays the price for sin, that satisfies divine justice, that provides pardon, justification, cleansing. We could keep on going here with every aspect of the gospel, and there isn't one aspect but has been procured for us by the one who said that night as he stood in the midst in that upper room, peace be unto you. Sinner, there's no peace in your heart. Why? Because you are a sinner. Sin robs you of peace. Sin disturbs your soul. It disturbs your life. It causes havoc and misery and heartache and sorrow. It leaves you empty. And perhaps you've started to feel this. I pray that that's true. Not that convictions save anybody, but convictions are there when God is at work. And you've begun to feel your sin, your need, your, your awful destitution. You may have many things in life, but it's coming home to you now. There's one thing that's missing. I don't have peace with God. May you feel that. And when the Lord comes into the midst as He does in a gathering like this, as I have been stressing tonight, is to show His passion for the lost, that through Him, our Savior, there's access to God. You might have that awful fear of God in a morbid sense, in a sense of, of dread. And I understand that because God is absolutely holy. He is faultless, pure, beyond our puny minds even to start to understand. He is glorious in His holiness. He is, as Hannah said, there's none holy as the Lord. How dare you or me approach such a God? How can we come to Him and be accepted by Him? unless there's someone like Christ, someone who took our humanity, and as the God-man has done the work, it saves, provides a way of access to God through His own blood, and provides that acceptance for us as our advocate in heaven, where he's pleading for sinners at the right hand of the majesty and high. Dear sinner, this is Christ's passion toward you. He's here tonight through the Word, by the Spirit, by His presence, to have you understand, to have you know and see and feel. The Lord loves me. The Lord has died for a wretch like me. And through His work, I can be reconciled to God, at peace with God, have my sins forgiven. There is the passion of His merit to save all the merit and value of the Lord's glorious work. 
There's the passion of His might to save, His power to save, because in the midst signifies that He has all the power necessary to save from sin. And Roman, in Revelation 5, that reference that we read tonight, or Mr. Stewart read earlier, tells us that He's there in heaven as a lamb slain. And the words, as many will know, literally read, a newly slain lamb. It simply means that the value of the Lord's death, that death that He died 2,000 years ago or thereabouts, the value of that death remains, it continues, it has, it has not receded. And therefore, the Lord is able. He's mighty to save. And you know, there's a wonderful statement written by the prophet Zephaniah that brings this home to us about the Lord's, the passion of His might to save souls. In Zephaniah 3, I read you the words it says this, The Lord thy God in the midst of thee is mighty. He will save. Now there you have it again, in the midst. For it says, The one who's in the midst is mighty. And then it says, He will save. And it goes on to say, that He will rejoice over thee with joy and, and He will joy over thee with singing. Imagine that. Imagine the Lord went in the midst and He's actually singing. He's actually rejoicing over those who are His. And if you become His, He will joy over you with singing. That's an amazing, a most amazing statement. Because if you know your own heart and you know your own vileness, you could say to yourself rightly, how could the Lord ever sing over me? Because you tell yourself, and rightly so, all I can do about me is lament over my sin, mourn over my transgressions, realize that I am unworthy totally through and through. So how... How could the Lord ever sing over me? My dear friend, the Lord sings over those who are His and those who are going to become His because He sees them covered with His own righteousness. He sees them clothed in the garments of the salvation that He provides. And therefore, He joys over them with singing. The Lord in the midst is mighty. And the word mighty is a word that really means a mighty man. A mighty man, Christ Jesus. Unlimited, unrestricted, a champion, a warrior who comes along to rescue the lost, who comes right into the midst to snatch them as brands from the burning, to save them for time and eternity. I close with this. We've looked at his preeminence over the lost and his passion for the lost. We'll just take again his promise to the lost. Because in verse 19, really, that really introduces 20, obviously, he talks about two or three coming together and agreeing on earth as touching anything that they shall ask. It shall 
be done for them of my Father which is in heaven. For where two or three are gathered together in my name, there am I in the midst of them. So all of this comes together as a wonderful promise to the lost. And that word ask in verse 19 is a word that signifies that the one who does the asking is actually inferior completely to the one of whom he asks. But the point is, it's a word that signifies the asking of a subject from a king, a beggar from somebody who's rich and who's passing by and who can meet all the needs. And that aptly fits you, doesn't it? You're a beggar. You are a subject to the king of kings. But listen, the Lord's in the midst for you to ask him for what you need. Does that sink in? Do you sense that? We've seen his preeminence over the lost and his passion for the lost. And now we're seeing his promise. He's really saying, if you ask me, let's put it this way, let's personalize it. The Lord's here tonight. He definitely is by his Spirit. He's in our midst. And he's saying to you, sinner, ask me for what I promise. And I will give you eternal life. I will give you the forgiveness of your sin that you need. I will hear your cry and I will save you. I will pluck you as a brand from the burning. I'll lift you out of the muck and the mire of sin. I'll set you on me, the rock, he's saying to you tonight. And I no longer will stand over you in condemnation, but in love and with delight toward you. A sinner, here is the step that you need to take. You need to ask. Being saved has that ingredient to it, that element to it. You need to ask the Savior for what He promises to give. That's why He says, if we confess our sins, that's asking, isn't it? If we confess our sins, He says, I'm faithful and just to forgive your sins and to cleanse you from all unrighteousness. You will never have until you ask. You will never enjoy this forgiveness until you bend the knee. And you, as I said earlier, you surrender to the Lord. And you look to Him to give you that reconciliation, all the merit of His cross work, to bring you into a right standing with God. Sinner, the time has come. Why wait anymore? Why not tonight? Why not this very moment as you sit on that pew, wherever you are, young or old, young lassies and young laddies in this meeting, or older folk, or even little children, wherever you are now, let your cry go up to heaven, to the one who's here among us tonight. He's in the midst. He's listening. He will save you if you will ask Him. It says here, 
talks about two or three. Wouldn't it be wonderful tonight if you were to determine within yourself when this meeting is over, I'm going to see that preacher. I'm going to get together with that minister. And I'm just saying to you what I've said umpteen times from this pulpit. And I'm going to sit down with him and I'm going to hear from his lips through the Word of God how I can be saved. Are you ready to take that step? It's time to seek the Lord. Time is now. Do not leave. Come to Christ. Seek out his salvation and do so this night. Let us bow in prayer. Let us just unite our hearts together in these closing moments and Again, I reiterate, I repeat that invitation. Come, have a word with us. Be our joy to help you tonight and lead you to the Lamb, to the one who is in our midst, the one who saves. Make your need known. Just don't go out the door another time. Father in heaven, do thy work. Move by thy spirit. Bring souls to the Lamb. Save them. Save them, we pray. Thou who art preeminent and passionate, far more than any preacher, and who promises to hear the cry, work, we pray for thine own everlasting glory. We pray in Jesus' name. And now may the grace of the Lord Jesus, the love of God, and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with all of thy people tonight and forever. In Christ's name we pray.